Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Hello and welcome to the Always On EM podcast. My name is Venk Belamkanda. I'm one half of the duo that is behind this show. The other half is Dr. Alex Finch. You could argue he's the better half. And you are joining us mid-month, mid-February 2023. Amazing how much of the year has already passed. And if you're like me, you enjoyed the Super Bowl just recently and are ready to learn something else. And that is why we are bringing you another Grand Rounds episode. Today, we have a special guest from Emory University, and I want to share a little bit of the background behind how we decided to invite her. In particular, we have a wonderful training program here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and it's wonderful because of the people. In this case, two relevant people, two of our trainees, Dr. Rebecca Leff and Dr. Giju Lim, reached out to me to say, hey, We want this particular speaker to come talk to us because we think they have experience and a mindset and a skill set that we don't hear enough of and we need to hear more about. And I couldn't agree more with them, especially after I heard the talk. After listening to this person's grand rounds, I was sitting and thinking about what I thought I knew about immigrant health and those who might be disenfranchised in healthcare here in the United States and reevaluating all of that because of the content and the passion with which the speaker gave her talk. And I was immediately certain that I needed to share this with the world, with all of you. And so it is an incredible honor to introduce Dr. Amy Zayden to all of you. She lives to serve the people most in need and has demonstrated, demonstrated that consistently. She's currently assistant professor at Emory University School of Medicine and works clinically at the landmark Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. She got her medical degree at George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences and did an emergency medicine residency at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. She completed an ultrasound fellowship at the University of Kentucky and is currently co-director of the Georgia Human Rights Clinic and co-founder of the Society of Asylum Medicine and has conducted forensic medical evaluations for more than 60 asylum seekers, including those who are detained. Her research focuses on barriers to acute care for refugees, immigrants, and asylum populations. She works closely with many local community organizations to advocate for improved access to medical care for immigrant populations and the release of medically vulnerable individuals from detention facilities. She is an active member of the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine's Academy for Women in Academic Medicine, serving on their executive board for over four years, and additionally has interests in gender inequities in academic medicine. Overall, like I said, she has devoted her life to uplifting those that are impoverished or disenfranchised by systemic care or systems in general. And it is an incredible honor and pleasure to learn from her and listen to her as she spotlights immigrant health. Of course, I'm not blind to the fact that when we talk about immigration and immigrant health and the care of people who are in need, sometimes personal beliefs, faith, and politics can get involved. And that can create tension. I would ask everyone to come to this table or this virtual table with the mindset that we have a unifying goal, which is to uplift the healthcare of the people that share this world with us. And if we keep that unified and shared vision in mind, I think we can all learn a lot from Dr. Zayden, regardless of our personal background and beliefs. As always, as you're listening to this and other pieces of content from Always On EM, if you find it valuable, we would greatly appreciate if you could tell others around you about the podcast so that they can listen too. And don't forget to like, comment, and follow us on whatever platform you're using. Okay, without any further delays, Dr. Zayden, the stage is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me um, to join you all. This is a topic that is very important to me. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to share some of the things that I have learned um, over the past many years about the health and health rights of immigrants. Um, I want to say a special thank you to you all for letting me be here virtually as much as I love the Minnesota winters, um, having grown up in Southern Minnesota. I recently had a baby who's now getting much older. And so it makes traveling right now very difficult. So um, a huge thank you for your your accommodation. Um, Again, I'll be back to Minnesota very soon, hopefully. 
Um, I have no disclosures, but I do want to say that um, I am talking about the health and health rights of immigrant populations, but I do not have the lived experience. I am not a former immigrant, refugee, asylum seeker. Um, much of what I have learned is from doing evaluations, uh, forensic evaluations with asylum seekers, um, working in our um, clinics for immigrant populations, and learning from those who have lived the who have the lived experience. Um, so my um, content expertise on this is not based on that. Um, therefore, I really actually can't call myself a content expert, um, but I think that's important to sort of recognize as we as we get started. <clears throat> um, so the objectives that were shared with you that we'll discuss um, include exploring the socio-political context of the U.S. immigration system, including immigration detention, discuss the barriers to care faced by immigrant populations and consider the role of EM physicians in supporting the health rights of immigrants, both in the emergency department and outside of the emergency department. So I'd like to start this um, talk with just thinking about definitions and pathways. And, and really the best way to, to say this is it's really complicated. So I think you know what we hear about sort of in the news and in the media, are terms that are used interchangeably, even though they're not necessarily interchangeable. Um, so I wanna start out just kind of going through a few of these terms. And again, these are not terms that I have picked or that I support, but they're really based on a legal framework, um, which is sort of how immigration has been designed in this country, um, for better or for worse. And so a lot of these define a legal um, status or a legal pathway and may not be the most, um, person-centered um, terminology, but I think it's important that we sort of recognize what these terms mean and sort of how they're used just so we really understand what that means in terms of healthcare access um, and, and how that applies to us in the emergency department. <clears throat> so generally, we kind of use the term immigrant, migrant, foreign-born to describe anyone who was born outside of the United States who has migrated to the United States. Somebody who is unauthorized or undocumented means that they do not have a legal status at that time. Um, somebody who has re refugee status has been designated refugee status in a different country, uh, meaning they applied while they were in their um, home or host country, were granted refugee status and arrived to the United States on that refugee status, which is a protected status um, and accessible to, for that person to become a green card holder, a permanent resident, and then a naturalized citizen. Whereas um, an asylum seeker is also someone that is similar to a refugee in that they have faced persecution for a variety of reasons, but they aren't granted or may not have applied for refugee status prior um, to coming to the United States. So that person enters and has to go through asylum proceedings, which can take many years and is quite complicated. And really um, the percentage of approval um, for those who then become asylees is quite low. And so an asylee is then someone who has actually been granted asylum status after an oftentimes many year process. You may hear about U visa, T visa, VAWA cases. Um, U visas are for those individuals who have been a, who are, um, have not a non-legal status, who are a victim of a crime and go through um, court proceedings to then be protected under that status. Um, T visa are for those individuals who are um, survivors of, of human trafficking. And VAWA cases are violence against, um, well, it's, it's violence against women, but it's not specifically for women, but it's essentially somebody who has been victimized in a, um, in a relationship um, and has protected status um, in the United States. And then there's all these other statuses that we hear about that we won't go into great detail, but really the emphasis is that they're permanent, or sorry, they're temporary, they're not permanent. And so many of these are in limbo um, or mean that this person can have a temporary protected status for a few years, and then that's a bridge to something else. But oftentimes that bridge, as we've seen with DACA, um, is, is again temporary, it's not permanent. <clears throat> and then there's multiple different types of visa holders. Um, for those who have a specific status, like refugees, for example, they can then after a certain period of time become a permanent resident, and then after a certain period of time become a naturalized citizen. It's usually five years as a permanent resident. So that's just a really, I, th I think, helpful way to kind of think about these terms and how complicated they are. 
And to complicate things even more, if we look even more closely at the asylum process, um, this this top line here is specifically to the refugee process, which we have talked about a little bit. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Minnesota um, as being a very welcoming state to the refugee resettlement process um, over the last probably 30 to 40 years. Looking up the recent stats, I think you all have over 100,000 resettled um, refugees in the state and, again, are kind of notoriously known in a good way um, in um, throughout our society of refugee healthcare providers as being a very welcoming and innovative state um, for resettlement. <clears throat> so the last three um, pathways here really focusing on, on the asylum process, and I'm not going to go through this in great detail, but I think it kind of helps um, display the complicated process of this. I want to focus on um, kind of what happens at the border because that's where we're hearing a lot of um, a lot of things in the news and have for the last many years. So the affirmative process is essentially somebody um, that enters on a valid visa, whether it's a visitation or a work visa, and those are honestly quite unlikely. Those are really hard to get, and for most people fleeing persecution. That is not something that can easily um, you can easily come by. So if you kind of think about how this works at the border, um, when someone is fleeing persecution and enters at a U.S. border, in the past, um, what happened is they would undergo a credible fear interview, and then usually would be released, um, not to a detention center or back to a different country, but released to await their their trial, their their proceedings. And what we've seen happen in the last few years is a lot of sort of unfortunate changes to this process. Um, one being that the credible fear interview um, typically is done by trained asylum officers. And we've seen sort of less trained asylum officers doing these credible fear interviews and um, sometimes denying people and um, deporting people quickly. We've also seen that a lot of people are forced to go to immigration detention facilities with the increased use of immigration detention. Um, and those uh, facilities are often sort of deportation machines. And there's some concerns that the um, the, the cases that, that um, go through the immigration court are, again, not really allowed a fair trial and don't really have great access to legal representation. Um, so that's kind of the pathway. And again, I just wanted to highlight those important things because <clears throat> it just gets really complicated. And I think it's important that we understand the context of the environment that some of our patients coming to us may have experienced. Okay, so now for an even more complicated process, I really like this framework, um, thinking of sort of the socio-structural context, because it helps us better understand when we're taking care of um, this population and, and these individuals, it helps us better understand what got them to that point and what the barriers are they face sort of in the real world when they leave the emergency department. Um, so one thing I think is really important is to think big and to think about the system and structures of our immigration system and really how they have allowed for or forced the exclusion of immigrant populations from many of our political, economic, and social policies. So I'm going to give you a few examples of this. Um, thinking about both social, economic, and political policies. During COVID, the COVID-19 relief um, packages that were released by the federal government had stipulations so most immigrant populations did not receive um, those benefits. So this is an example of you know, a population experienced the same difficulties as all of us during COVID-19 plus more and were excluded from the very benefits that um, many of us had access to. <clears throat> Another example of this um, is a little bit more um, focused, but interesting is the uh, sort of recent federal policy or um, executive order in which the Biden administration uh, excused or exonerated those who had um, possession of marijuana and were in, in justice involved or incarcerated because of that. Um, but this did not apply to immigrant populations. And finally, home where I'm where I live um, is home to me in Georgia. Um, there are a number of really harmful policies, but one that I see not infrequently is that um, those who don't have legal status don't have access to a driver's license. And so what that means is they can't 
thrive. And that can be a really challenging and stressful situation, especially during COVID-19. And what we saw with some of our populations is that they were forced to use public transportation, even though it was unsafe, or they were forced to drive in unsafe conditions, taking back roads so that they were avoiding any sort of law enforcement. And if they then did get into a car accident, um, oftentimes those patients were then entered into this sort of detention deportation proceedings. So I think these are, it's a really helpful way to kind of think about the big structures and systems of immigration that our patients face um, outside of the hospital, outside of the emergency department. And then if you look a little bit more narrower, um, thinking about social or structural determinants of health. So those are the things that affect where we live, work, and play. <clears throat> and I'll go through this in a little bit more detail, um, but that's kind of the, the more neighborhood effect of immigration alone being a social determinant of health. And then finally, thinking even more focused on sort of the individual, when we think about the term structural vulnerability, essentially what that means is that there is bias and disadvantage um, towards certain groups, which leads to exploitation and discrimination. And so these are this is kind of the framework that I think about in terms of many structurally vulnerable populations, but um, immigrants especially, to understand how have these populations been excluded from you know, healthcare um, and how has that led to what we're seeing in the emergency department and the barriers that they face when they leave. So in thinking about kind of the systems and structures, I think another important thing is just looking at the last 10 years in which the, <clears throat> the discussion has been a lot more hostile. Um, under the Trump administration alone, there were over 400 immigration, anti-immigration rela- related executive orders. This is again, another example of kind of the, the socio-political um, structures that impact immigration and really how that Um, impacts people on an individual level is with fear. And what we heard from a lot of our populations during during COVID and during the last few years is that they were afraid to seek care because of the sort of anti-immigrant sentiment that was present in the United States um, at that time and still is. And then again, kind of going to that next circle, thinking about immigration as a social determinant of health, um, this impacts your access to so many things. So the first being access to healthcare, um, which is really related to whether or not you have access to health insurance, which we'll talk a bit more about, I believe, on the next slide. Access to public benefits. So as I mentioned, during COVID-19, having access to any, to the sort of COVID-19 relief packages. But this extends beyond that. In fact, if you look at many social programs, um, particularly in the state of Georgia, a lot of the, the funding for these social programs has a tiny asterisk in which um, immigrant populations or those without legal status are excluded from, from that funding. Um, access to safe employment is a huge one. So for those who don't have legal status, um, oftentimes they're forced to work in environments that um, they can easily be exploited or made to feel that they don't have rights. And that's not actually true under um, OSHA policies, but it does really force people to work in employment that is oftentimes unsafe. And then kind of thinking about um, all these barriers and then this sort of financial instability and what that means in terms of where you have access to live, Um, based on sort of your your socioeconomic status, and that can impact the safety of your neighborhood as well. And then finally, um, I kind of mentioned fear before, but this is um, something that we heard a lot from our our patients is that they, when they are victims of a crime or, you know, something bad happens, they don't feel that they have protection. They don't feel that they can come forth um, to, um, to really explain, you know, what happened or to report somebody. Uh, because they're afraid that they will be discovered. And this um, unfortunately happened with a few of our um, asylum-seeking populations in which they were victims of or survivors of um, intimate partner violence, and they called to report the violent um, event and were then um, discovered, essentially, and went through the, the deportation proceedings. Um, So now we have a little bit more kind of like a a background or a framework that kind of, I think, helps, hopefully helps you understand 
you know, those are the barriers that people face outside of the um, <clears throat> outside of the ER and how that can then impact the actual barriers to care before even coming to the emergency department. So I like to talk about healthcare access and what that means. Um, and really, I think in this in this country, your ticket to healthcare access is through insurance. So looking at some of these different populations we've talked about, I wanted to go through what that means in terms of health insurance and health access. So for refugee populations, they have access to something called refugee Medicaid, which is equivalent to, um, to regular Medicaid for about eight months. After that point, they are expected to um, apply for marketplace insurance or employment-sponsored insurance. There was a study that was done that looked at refugee populations a few years out and um, identified that many of those populations did not have any sort of insurance um, for a variety of reasons. One reason being that um, when, when someone is their refugee Medicaid is ending, they usually get a notification that says, you know, hey, your <clears throat> Medicaid is ending, here are your next options. But oftentimes that's in English or, um, you know, confusing because it can be a paper or an email or something that that person may not understand. And so we've had a lot of our patients say, you know, I, I didn't understand, I didn't get a notice, I didn't know that this was ending. We've also had a lot of people say, I can't afford insurance through my employer because it's really expensive. Um, so if you take, for example, Clarkston, Georgia, which is a city right outside of Atlanta, um, where most of our resettled refugee populations um, live, the average income or the, the average income for a family of four is somewhere between thirty to fifty thousand dollars. And so if you think about taking your financial, any any sort of um, money out of that for insurance, many people opt out of it because they say they couldn't afford it. So that's just kind of, um, I think, the, the confusing process where it's, yes, you do have access to insurance, but like, what is that theoretical access? And so for a lot of our refugee populations, at least in Georgia, what that means is that based on their type of insurance, the the sources of care that they're accessing tend to be federally qualified health centers, free clinics, um, or county-specific clinics, cl county-specific hospitals like Grady. For asylum seekers and those who are applying for other statuses, um, really you don't have access to insurance until potentially your work authorization, which comes 150 days after application for asylum. Um, which is a long time to go without work and without health insurance. And again, many people may not have access to um, employer-sponsored insurance. So your health access then, again, similarly, um, is federally qualified health centers, free cl clinics, and the emergency department, and potentially emergency Medicaid. Um, and then sort of similar, similarly for those who don't have, um, who are who are undocumented, really their access to health insurance is, is incredibly minimal depending on what state you are in. Um, in Georgia, we don't have Medicaid expansion. In some other states like California, they do have special programs, but really your, your access to insurance is so limited that, that the places that you can access care tend to be federally qualified health centers, free clinics, emergency departments, and potentially emergency Medicaid for those who have more life-threatening conditions. So I think this, this slide is helpful to think about in terms of access. Because what it tells me is that really the access is so um, limited that oftentimes the emergency department becomes an individual's medical home. And I think we have an opportunity as emergency physicians to, to really um, recognize that and advocate for that because these are the, the populations that in reality we are frequently taking care of. So I want to transition and talk just a little bit about barriers to seeking care and then barriers to care um, for populations in the emergency department. <clears throat> and this is based off of a few studies that we did um, looking, doing a qualitative, doing qualitative studies with um, refugee and immigrant populations and hearing from them sort of in their own words, what are the barriers that they have when seeking care? And this is also supported by evidence throughout the literature. So what a lot of our participants told us is that the U.S. healthcare system, as we know, is really complicated. And you know, many people came from countries in which there's no such thing as an emergency department, or they were in a refugee camp for many years, and that was their experience with healthcare. And so that's kind of one of the first barriers is really understanding, you know, what the U.S. healthcare system is. And many people come to the emergency department 
not knowing it's an emergency department. And so that can be uh, quite a jarring experience as the emergency department can be in general, even if you know, um, even if you are familiar with the healthcare system. Language barriers, as we know, are quite prevalent. Um, and this goes not just to, you know, actual language barriers when you're seeing a patient, but thinking about how someone would schedule an appointment. It's hard for me to schedule an appointment and let alone, you know, somebody who doesn't have um, an interpreter present for their um, for their phone call. So that can be a huge challenge for people just in terms of scheduling. Um, our participants also said that access to clinic is really limited um, based on you know, where they're living, the distance to the clinic, their access to transportation to that clinic, going to a clinic that accepts their insurance and going to a clinic that offers interpretation. And so what that means is, you know, there may only be a few clinics that have all of those things that you can reliably access. And when we looked at this for our, um, for our women's clinic at our refugee clinic in Philadelphia, we geo-mapped different clinics um, to where our patients lived and essentially identified that where our women patients lived, there were clinic deserts, essentially, that they really didn't have access to women's health um, in, the, in the locations that they lived in. And then access to medications can be really challenging. Some people may not be familiar with prescription medications or sort of how that works um, and have financial barriers to medications as well. Um, access to dental and specialty care is even more challenging just thinking about, you know, the barriers to primary care. And then you add that um, dental and specialty care oftentimes requires different funding mechanisms, referrals, and even harder to get appointments. <clears throat> and finally, uh, many of our patients said, it's not my priority right now. I just moved to a new country. My health is actually not my priority right now um, because I'm, I feel okay. I feel healthy. And so that can be a challenge, especially when your insurance is sort of limited to the first um, six to eight months for refugee populations. So thinking about barriers in the ED and hospital, and these are more barriers that I think we as um, clinicians can control. One being interpretation. I think you know this is not um, we, we're all sort of familiar with this, but I like to think about, it's not just me using interpreter with my patient. It's everyone. It's, you know, when people come in, oftentimes the registration, the text, the, you know, everybody that's involved in that person's care, um, may not be using interpretation. And so that makes understanding the encounter really confusing. Um, we've also, there's also been studies looking at, um, not necessarily immigrant populations, but non-English speaking or non-English non-English language preference populations, demonstrating that these populations are much more likely to experience adverse events in the hospital, um, medication errors, longer lengths of stay, more post-operative complications, thereby meaning that the quality of care that these individuals receive is, is much lower than what we would expect. And then finally, um, as we've already sort of mentioned, barriers to insurance can really impact somebody's ability to follow up. And even having a place where people can go to follow up can be um, quite challenging, just as we saw with their ability to identify a medical home or primary care um, option. Okay, so I've covered, I think, um, you know, big framework sort of of thinking about the context of immigration in the United States, how that impacts um, individuals' access to healthcare, how that impacts us and our ability to care for patients. And um, I want to transition to just um, kind of end on talking about immigration detention. I can't talk about immigration without talking about um, detention because it's, I think, such an um, widely used and um, an important part of sort of the experiences, sadly, that many people experience in the United States. So looking at immigration detention over the last 30 years, the number of immigration detention centers has increased dramatically with a huge rise in the total number of individuals detained. And part of this is because Congress um, and through executive orders essentially mandated a daily status of over 30,000 people detained in facilities every day. Um, and so it gets really complicated in terms of um, requirements in that these facilities make money off of um, off of holding people in detention and 
um, it sort of incentivizes the use of immigration detention. So we can see that these numbers have continued to go up. Um, and kind of when I went through that, the pathway before for um, asylum seekers and those at the border, what we're seeing now is that many people who present to the United States fleeing persecution are more likely to be placed in immigration detention facilities. But this is also true for those who are living in the United States and potentially discovered, um, who then are sent to immigration detention facilities and then um, ultimately, for the most part, kind of leads to deportation. What I think is really important to highlight is that the conditions in detention are equivalent to the conditions in prison. They're, they're really awful. Um, the housing is really inadequate. The food is really inadequate. It's terrible hygiene. Um, we saw this during COVID-19 in which many people didn't have access to um, hand sanitizer or soap and water, didn't have access to masks, weren't able to social distance, were kind of stuck in pods um, very close to one another. Um, the work conditions are similar where people are oftentimes forced to work for a very, very low um, reimbursement rate. And then the detention facilities operate under civil law, which essentially means that you don't have um, access to a lawyer um, as, as one would in a um, criminal proceedings. And so legal access can be really, really challenging, especially considering that a lot of these facilities are located in rural areas where um, where there just aren't a lot of legal support. And then, as I mentioned before, um, these are sort of high deportation machines where people are not really afforded due process um, because they're deported so quickly. And we've we've seen that a lot recently, especially in um, individuals who spoke out about conditions um, and their treatment. So this, um, the next bullet point is thinking about sort of medical mismanagement, neglect, and abuse. And I think this is where we come in as, um, as clinicians in really thinking about what are the medical rights of individuals in immigration detention and how are those being violated. And so one way we sort of looked at this is we did chart reviews for individuals in, um, in detention facilities throughout the Southeast who were referred to us by different uh, legal advocates. And in our review of medical charts, objectively identified a variety of medical neglect and mismanagement, just a few that you can see here. Um, so we found that many people received an incorrect workup for a specific condition, were not appropriately referred to a specialist, received incorrect medications or treatments, um, and often had, in general, substandard operations in these facilities in which there were significant delays in care. Um, limited oversight and inconsistent documentation. <clears throat> so one way that I think I try to relate this to the emergency department, because people could say, you know, why is as emergency medicine physicians should we care about this? Um, and I think one, because the sort of the rights of individuals are being violated, but also understanding the negative experiences that those um, individuals face in immigration detention and how that impacts their quality of care if they're able to get out or if they, if your patient has a family member or loved one um, in detention. But also we looked at the number of 911 calls from immigration, uh, from an immigration detention facility in Georgia. And we found that there were actually a lot of calls. Um, so this looked at a five-year period, um, publicly, publicly available 911 calls and we looked at um, how many calls occurred over that five-year period. We found that in a two in, in a one-week period, there were at least two to three calls per week. So 70% of the days there were no calls, but about 30% of the days there were one or two calls. Um, which again, there's no great comparison, but I think this is a lot. Um, I think that you know, two to three calls to EMS a week and then transport to the emergency department means that. If you work um, in a facility close to these detention facilities, you are likely taking care of these patients. And it's important to understand the medical conditions that they face in their um, in their facility. So I think that's how, you know, one thing to kind of relate it to the emergency department, um, given that we're oftentimes caring for these individuals and um, the the chief complaints or the reasons for the EMS call when we look through them were for high acuity conditions, as you would expect what we see in the emergency department, 
chest pain, abdominal pain, syncope, shortness of breath, seizure. Um, our next step is to look through the actual EMS data um, to understand the severity of individuals upon arrival, the disposition, the interventions, and then hopefully if we can look through um, ED department um, databases by payer code to see um, the the outcome of the of the individuals that were sent to the emergency department and potentially hospitalized. Um, so I'm just curious if you all know if there's any detention centers in Minnesota, because again, you could say this doesn't really apply to us. And I'll tell you, there is actually um, one facility in um, Carver County, I think in Chaska. So it's really interesting because ICE has both dedicated facilities where it's just um, just immigrants, and they have what they call um, intergovernmental service agreements, where they they contract with local prisons and jails um, to hold both immigrants um, who are detained and um, those who um, reside there for criminal convictions. And so interestingly, most states actually have, if it's not a dedicated facility, they do have these um, IGSA, these agreements with ICE and many prisons or jails do hold um, those who are <clears throat> in the immigration detention process. So I would say that the Carver County facility does not have a lot of individuals detained, um, but they do have a high deportation rate and they could not access where they came from, whether you know somebody who was living in Minnesota and then was going through the deportation process or if it was somebody that was transferred to that facility. Um, but again, I think it's important that we are sort of aware of how these facilities function and where they're located, um, both as sort of a medical rights issue, but also to understand that you may be taking care of these individuals depending on, um, depending on where you practice in the future. And then finally, um, I, this, I, I'll end with this and then um, hopefully we'll have time to discuss and answer any questions, but kind of going back to the that sort of big system structure, the sociopolitical context, um, this is some data that has been done by an amazing organization, BAJI, um, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. But the, the entire immigration system, if you think about it, is a sort of racialized system um, in, inherent with sort of racist policies and practices. <clears throat> so if you just look at the data here, the percentage of individuals who are Black, who are um, unauthorized or undocumented is, is quite small, but the number of those facing detention on criminal grounds is quite high. And some of the reasons for that that they have pointed to or explored um, include racial profiling, um, which we know, which we know often happens. And so kind of thinking about um, the this, the immigration system being sort of riddled with um, <clears throat> racist policies is, is not that surprising as we can see that play out in who is granted um, status, whether that's temporary status in the United States or other statuses. We've sort of seen that recently um, with resettlement processes for um, those seeking refuge from Ukraine, for example, and from other countries where they were potentially less likely to be granted uh, protected status. So again, I think that's really important to sort of think about when we're thinking about the systems and structures and um, and where our patients fall um, in in sort of the middle of all of all of these things. Um, I can't leave you without any good resources um, because I think these two are really essential resources. Now that I've sort of given you all this information and you're thinking to yourself, what can I do with it? There are some great toolkits that were developed for this reason, um, really to make your hospital system immigration informed and make it welcoming for immigrant populations. Um, <clears throat> the first toolkit was developed by an amazing researcher who did a years long study um, looking at how we can better welcome and protect immigrants in healthcare settings. So this is a toolkit I would highly recommend. Um, we took that toolkit and incorporated some information, incorporated some other information that's specific to emergency departments and created an immigration advocacy toolkit with um, SAEM. Um, which is 
also, I think, a really helpful resource and tool to kind of go through and say, you know, we can do X, Y, and Z in our emergency department in terms of operations, in terms of education, and so on and so forth. And so I think this toolkit has a lot of great resources in it. A few that I like to highlight is um, simply having a committee um, that's multi-specialty, that's sort of operational, that... Um, meets regularly to think about how to make your health system more immigration informed, whether that's having more welcoming spaces or having sort of public and private spaces where um, ICE officials can't access um, that are designated for patient care only, whether that's having a guide um, working with your legal team for interacting with ICE officials. There's tons of great resources in this toolkit. And so I would encourage you all to if you're interested um, and, and want to do sort of more, um, that's, I think, a good a good place to start. So with that, I'd love to take any questions and discuss further. Um, I know we covered a lot of ground, and like I said, it's, it is quite complicated. So happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Zayden. That was, that was really wonderful and stuff we don't talk about very often. Um, folks online, you can just ask, and then in the room, Dr. Hami and I both have mics. Just raise your hand, and we can um, we can bring one to you. Dr. Leff, I know you were really in interested to have Dr. Zayden come here. Do you have any thoughts now that you had had a chance to talk with her? Well, thank you very much for agreeing to come and do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'd be interested to see, since your background being in Minnesota, if you have any specific thoughts um, in terms of. Um, integrating uh, some of these recommendations into emergency departments in Minnesota specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start with kind of like a bigger, <clears throat> bigger picture and then, and then narrow it more to the emergency department. So as I mentioned, Minnesota has done an incredible job in terms of refugee resettlement. Um, I'm forgetting the website. I think it's based out of the university of Minnesota but the U of M was actually one of the first to have a course on um, health for refugee populations. So I think there's already some existing work that has hopefully you know, infiltrated out of the, the Twin Cities um, and, into, um, and into more external sort of sources. But I think you know, it is at the forefront, I think, of a lot of the sort of policy-minded people in <clears throat> at least in the Twin Cities to be thoughtful about our about the the policies um, and sort of economic and social policies in Minnesota that are welcoming to Im immigrant populations. One example of that is Minnesota has dedicated grant funding for um, individuals who were a health professional in their home country who now face barriers to getting certification for that health profession, whether it be nursing, dentistry medicine, et cetera. And so they provide funding for individuals who want to obtain obtain US specific certification. And that's just one, like, I know that's not specific to the emergency department, but I think that's one way that uh, Minnesota has done a really great job in, in being a leader in this field. Um, I think in the emergency department in, um, in Minnesota, Specifically, it kind of depends on, on where you work and what the population is. But I would say the first thing to look at is look at your resettlement agencies and understand what are the main populations um, that they provide services for, whether that's for those who are resettled or those those who are resettled as refugees or those who have um, who are you know non refugees but resettled in the community. Um, I'm not sure off the top of my head what the largest populations are in Rochester, but I think understanding that is really important so that you can make sure that the cultural and linguistic um, um, barriers don't exist in the emergency department. For example, if you see that, you know, the Burmese population is highly represented maybe it would be beneficial and maybe you already do this, but maybe it'd be beneficial for your operations team to work directly with a Burmese specific community organization and have dedicated interpretation, dedicated resources, et cetera, for those individuals when they seek care in the emergency department and have a sort of transition option for them so that you can contact someone in that organization or, you know, if they're affiliated with a clinic to say, we're discharging this person, person from the ER, can you make sure that, um, that somebody follows up with them? 
Another important thing that I think is not specific just to where you practice, but could be done everywhere, um, are medical legal partnerships. Having a, a lawyer as part of your medical team can help with a variety of health harming legal needs, but specifically immigration can be one of them so that you can refer um, those people, those individuals who are you know, concerned about their status, concerned about how that relates to insurance. And I'll give you one example of this is um, in Philadelphia, one of our refugee patients was admitted to the hospital and discharged, and he received a bill after the fact for $70,000 and came to the organization um, that he was most familiar with and said, there's no way I can pay this bill. Like I, I literally want to die because this, this is, this will ruin me and my family um, were his, was his own words. And with legal support and social work and case management support, they were able to um, get insurance applied retroactively for him um, and was able to, you know, reduce the fee that he had to pay. But these are, I think, you know, medical legal partnerships are really powerful in that sense. Having the advocacy and knowledge of a lawyer as part of the team um, can be um, can be life changing for a lot of people. So that would be another recommendation. Probably wait for other questions. Uh, Dr. Zayden, I was curious, can you speak to the training program that you've built or like that you've supported in Emory? How do you train your residents to be able to care for the underserved even better in addition to the clinical experiences that you have? Yeah, that's it. That's a great question. So um, we are a human rights clinic. We started in 2019 and really focused on it's really focused on medical students, I would say, and you know, residents are more than welcome to be involved in the clinic, but I would say sometimes um, their time is limited. And so we find different ways to plug them in. Um, so our clinic is, an, is essentially an asylum clinic where we coordinate um, forensic evaluations for those seeking asylum. So we work with about 12 different local legal organizations and do um, coordination so that the client is connected with a um, clinician who can do a one-time medical psych or physical examination to document evidence of prior trauma torture. And that can be really helpful for somebody's asylum claim. Um, they're two to three times more likely to be granted asylum if they have that accompanying medical evaluation. Um, so that's just another way, another plug for clinicians to be involved in sort of human rights work specific to asylum seeking populations. So that's one of our main programs. And then the other programs is uh, one of the other programs is we review medical records for medically vulnerable individuals in detention and write a letter highlighting um, evidence of, of medical mismanagement if it exists. And so many of our students and residents can help with that. They're paired with an attending or faculty member and write the letter together. And those letters have been successful in getting many people released from detention facilities who are not otherwise getting medical care. So I think there's a lot of programs like that um, <clears throat> that you can, you know, find depending on, on where you are. There's, I think, over 30 different asylum clinics um, affiliated with medical students in the United or affiliated with medical schools in the United States. So that's one way that we expose learners of all types um, to this work. We also offer um, electives in both the third year and fourth year of medical school. And then um, within our residency program, we have a sort of newish social emergency medicine track where people can do this work um, and help with some of the operational aspects. So our residents have been really helpful in a lot of the operational components of this. Um, in you know, one example was our so a few of our residents worked with our Grady legal team to develop a guide for um, interacting with ICE um, officials. We weren't successful in getting it adopted. Um, it's still out in the limbo kind of area, um, but you know we've we started somewhere. Um, and some of the residents again were responsible for trying to designate specific areas of the emergency department to be more safe places. So individuals felt comfortable, you know, sort of free of ICE or law enforcement in those areas as well. I'm sorry, Dr. Leff has another comment. Sorry, I was just going to just, um, the, the forensic asylum training that she mentioned is, is actually pretty doable. And um, if anybody wants resources to complete that, I have an always an ongoing list of um, 
how to complete that and so that you can you know do that when you graduate residency. So just ask. And I would put in an extra plug for that because as emergency medicine physicians, we are experts at evaluating trauma, both acute and chronic. And so I think we are, you know, many, many clinicians can do this work, but I think we are sort of uniquely positioned given our experience. Um, and so that evaluation, again, is a one-time evaluation in which you um, you interview a client and evaluate, do a physical evaluation to document physical findings of prior trauma. Um, and it's not, un- I, I rely on my emergency medicine skills, every evaluation that I do because you really have to think through the mechanism of injury. You know, how did this person get injured? Most of the time they weren't they weren't able to get medical care. So thinking about sort of the long-term sequela of those injuries. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's really important as Rebecca said, it is doable. Um, I think if you do the training as a resident and you kind of start learning about it and even maybe shadow an evaluation and then do one, that I think you're more likely than once you finish residency to be comfortable doing those evaluations on your own. And as I mentioned, they're hugely powerful um, where someone who has an accompanying medical evaluation is two to three times more likely to be granted asylum, which is really important considering a state like Georgia, where the approval rate is less than 5%. Um, although I would say the national average is 30 to 50%. So you're you know much more likely to be granted asylum in a different state. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Dr. Zayden, most of all, for advocating with your time and your platforms for the health of our immigrant neighbors. We really appreciate the expertise, even if it's not lived as an immigrant, that you bring to this topic. Listeners, thank you for coming back and tuning in every couple weeks to learn together with Alex and I. We truly appreciate you more than you may realize. We put our hearts and souls into this production because we love bringing great content to you. And please help us out by liking, commenting, following our show on whatever listening platform you're using. And most of all, by telling your colleagues and friends to tune in as well. We love hearing from all of you. So please connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, or via email at alwaysonem at gmail.com. We will return March 1st, 2023. So get caught up on everything so far and be ready to learn some more at that time. Until then, peace out. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.